Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Our nation's founders gathered in taverns to enjoy lively conversation over a local brew, and so do we. It's a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River, presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. I'm Ben Kiefer. And I'm Aaron Jordan. Our panel tonight is the Gazette's Deputy Des Moines Bureau Chief, Tom Barton, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor, Todd Dorman, and Gazette Columnist, Althea Cole. So let's get started. As usual, we'll, we'll talk about national politics during the first half, then we'll do a break and come back for state and local politics. Two weeks ago, um, we teased Republicans at Big Grove about not being able to elect a House Speaker. Um, well, as Senator Chuck Grassley said um, this week, praise the Lord, we have a Speaker. <laughs> Louisiana's Mike Johnson was voted to the position last week. I guess there's not much time left until a November 17th deadline to fund the government. Are there any signs at this point how Johnson is doing wrangling the different factions of his party in the House? Speaking to some uh, congressional staffers um, and uh, speaking with um, Iowa's uh, U.S. Representative Ashley Henson, the thought is that um, the um, hardline uh, conservatives, the members of the House Freedom Caucus, um, that there is going to be kind of a honeymoon period um, with having uh, Mike Johnson elected as speaker. Um, you know, they are uh, trying to claim him as, as one of their own. Um, he's attended House Freedom Caucus meetings, but I don't think he's technically a member of the House Freedom Caucus, but they're claiming him as one of their own, and um, they feel good that they, you know, have a scalp with the ouster of, of Kevin McCarthy. Um, and so there's going to be a bit of a honeymoon period. They're giving him a bit of a grace period to kind of get his feet underneath him um, as they go into the negotiations about um, how to fund the government and avoid um, a shutdown, as you mentioned, um, you know, uh, the November 17th deadline for government um, uh, funding to run out. But it's, I don't know, it still remains to be seen how he's going to unite the different uh, factions within the House GOP. Um, you know, he uh, started out by proposing a continuing resolution, you know, which is um, in part, you know, one of the things that um, uh, got McCarthy in trouble with the House Freedom Caucus when they were um, talking about uh, funding negotiations. He's since, I think, walked back from that. Um, he put forward uh, a bill um, for support for Israel that is um, tied to um, uh, rescinding funding for the IRS um, that was um, included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, and that seems to, uh, at least as of now, um, it seems to be going over well with members of, of the House Republican Caucus. Um, I think it passed. Did it pass? I think so. I think he had like 12 down. Okay. Well, there you go. Something. I don't know. Maybe. I didn't actually work that hard today, so we'll, we'll check on that at the break. <laughs> I, 
Yeah, and I, I'm probably out of the loop. I've been on the campaign trail following Tim Scott um, for most of today. Um, but anyway, the, the, the responses that I hear from congressional aides and, um, again, from members within Iowa's um, congressional delegation um, is uh, they supported the proposal that he put forward. Um, they liked the idea of... Um, you know, clawing back that money from the Inflation Reduction Act to use it as um, a pay for um, for aid to Israel. Um, you know, saying that we need to get a control on on federal spending. Um, and uh, every time in the past that these packages have been put forward, um, it's been done without um, a thought to again what that's going to do to the federal deficit in the federal budget. Interestingly enough, though, Tom, and and, and actually, yes, the the, re- the Republican-led House. Um, we're recording this on Thursday, did pass that over $14 billion measure for Israel's war with Hamas. Um, but yesterday, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, keeping that offset uh, of, you know, cut to the IRS there, the Congressional Budget Office said that the spending cuts laid out in the bill would actually increase the deficit by over $12 billion over the next dec- decade because cutting back the IRS's enforcement ability would reduce revenue collections. Well, I mean, I mean, you got to help Israel, and then you got to help, like, you know, billionaire tax cheats. I mean, you know, it's. I mean, that's what you. I mean, the problem for Speaker Johnson is the same as Speaker McCarthy. You've got a choice: you side with the Freedom Caucus or you govern the country. You can't do both at the same time. So. I mean, when, as this November 17th deadline comes up for shutting down the federal government, he's going to be in the same boat. He's not going to have enough votes to pass. I mean, he may have enough votes in the House to pass what the Freedom Caucus wants, but he, he's not going to have enough votes in the Senate. So there's going to have to be a compromise. And if he compromises, then, well, guess what? They, <laughs> they'll, they'll remove him and, and we'll go through this all over again. But maybe he's Maybe he's got a secret strategy that I'm not aware of, so right. well, we'll see. And still hanging over his head is um, the ability of a member to force oh. a motion to vacate, right? So, so, I mean, he faces the same, the same issues, the same problems that McCarthy faced of, of potential removal. Mm-hmm. Well, he also faces a very important learned lesson there, which is don't uh, make concessions to your caucus that are going to come back and bite you in the bum. All I want for Christmas is a new speaker, and maybe one for Thanksgiving also. <laughs> we have a, a, a listener, we have a, someone in our audience with a question here, but before that, let me preface, because it has a lot to do with it, with a Quinnipiac uh, University National Poll of Registered Voters released today, an overwhelming majority of voters, 84%, are either very concerned uh, or somewhat concerned that the U.S. will be drawn into a military conflict in the Middle East, and a little bit of variance depending on the party they belong to. Uh, but uh, this questionnaire, let's just try the poll here out with our audience. How many are in this audience of a couple hundred, 150, 200 people, are either very concerned or somewhat concerned the U.S. will be drawn into a military conflict in the Middle East. Clap if you are concerned. So one of the audience members asks, should the U.S. be involved in the Israeli war? To what level of participation in getting American citizens out of Gaza? We have, I think, about 10 U.S. citizens as the 
hosti as hostages, about 200 Israelis. But many other American citizens in Gaza who yes. are trying to get out through Egypt. Are not hostages, but yes, more or less trapped in Gaza. The reality is we are already involved to an extent. Anytime we give money to a country who is participating in a conflict, we are involved. So um, should we actually send troops over? <laughs> I don't think that hardly anybody is, is in agreement with that at this point. Um, but there is always this reality that when you have your own citizens in a, an extremely dangerous area, which the Gaza Strip is obviously incredibly dangerous right now, um, yeah, we have to do something to get them out, because if we don't, who will? Well, and I, I think I read that, I mean, the United States has been conducting airstrikes against Hezbollah targets in Syria. Is that, is that wrong or right? I, I think that I read that. So we're, I mean, the whole thing is whether this becomes a regional conflict, Hezbollah gets uh, involved, you know, from Lebanon, if Iran decides to be more than just a, a proxy sponsor of some of this stuff, if they actually get involved. Uh, I mean, that's, that's the threat, is that you could have a, a wider conflict that the United States would probably ultimately get pulled into to, to, to help Israel. I want to shift, um, you know, from this topic to what we're seeing in the presidential race. Uh, a new Iowa poll came out this week showing former President Donald Trump in the lead with 43% of Republican respondents in Iowa saying he would be their top pick for the Iowa caucuses in January. Uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley were the next highest, both with 16%. You know, there were a lot of takeaways from that. Uh, just wanted to throw it out to the panel at large. What were some of your, um, you know, what did you think were most interesting results from that poll? Looking at how much Nikki Haley's support has swelled uh, in Iowa um, and uh, pulling even with uh, Ron DeSantis for second place, um, you know, it, it continues to reinforce um, just the, the dominant grip that Donald Trump uh, has on the Republican Party and just the, you know, commanding lead that he has among likely um, uh, Republican caucus goers. Truthfully, I didn't find a whole lot of it very, very, very interesting because it's typical caucus stuff. Um, you know, okay, we have Donald Trump, and we've had him for not two, but three cycles now, and the Trump effect kind of adds a, a little bit of a weightedness to his candidacy, because Trump isn't just a candidate, he is a brand. Um, that being said, you know, I remember politics before Trump, the 2012 Republican caucuses. We're still two months plus, like a week or two before the January 15th Iowa caucuses. A lot can still happen then, so as, as neat as these polls are to see who is kind of, you know, having the latest surge, including Nikki Haley, who is, as we've discussed, uh, having a pretty good one right now, there's still a lot of time for things to change, and, and things will continue to be interesting in that regard. I mean, you look at the poll, I, I think Haley's rise is, is intriguing, given that she's a, you know, a, a non-indicted adult. Who, who seems to have, who seems to have pretty, pretty. I, I don't agree with her on much, but she, she does seem to have a command of issues, uh, you know. But the thing is, as long as we've got all of these candidates, as long as support is split, well, you know, Trump gets forty-three percent of the of the support in the caucus poll. That that means fifty-seven percent of Iowa Republicans either aren't supporting him or don't know what they're who they're going to support. So. Uh, 
I, but I, but you know, I agree with Althea to some extent. There is time for it to tighten. You know, I, Sorry, to tighten. We're, we're, we're very ideologically different from each other, so anytime I hear somebody say, well, I no, agree I, with Althea, my ears perk up. I mean, you're, you're right about the caucuses and how, on how that works. And, right about a lot of things, uh, just for the record. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, somebody may catch fire at the end and, and challenge Trump. It doesn't look like that now, but, any, you know, anything's possible, I guess. You're listening to a special Pints in Politics edition of River to River from IPR News in partnership with the Gazette, recorded yesterday evening, November 2nd in Cedar Rapids. Back in just a moment with more. Support for IPR comes from Mirden Supel and Downer, attorneys at law, dedicated to providing comprehensive legal solutions for Eastern Iowa since 1948. Located in downtown Iowa City and at MirrodinLaw.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's a special Pints in Politics edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Yesterday evening, we gathered in Cedar Rapids before a live audience. Our panelists, Gazette journalists Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton. Aaron Jordan was my co-host. At this point, I mentioned that last weekend, former Vice President Mike Pence ended his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination. Comedians all around had a field day, uh, have had a field day with the former vice president and with his exit here. One of my favorites, Andy Borowitz of The New Yorker, perhaps you saw it. Two days after suspending his campaign for the Republican presidential nomination, former Vice President Mike Pence has returned $4 to his donors. <laughs> Speaking to reporters, Pence said that he took pride in the fact that his campaign has been funded exclusively by small contributions. (laughs) Comment on Mike Pence's uh, candidacy, his failure to fund his campaign and to get support. Were the $4 in contributions from some kid's piggy bank? Oh, do uh, you want me to talk more? Okay. Um, Mike Pence, Mike Pence. I went to a Mike Pence town hall with CNN back in June. Um, I was in Des Moines for something, and I got one of those emails that invites you to things that is really telling you, we'd like some bodies in the room, so please go to this. So, you know, okay, what the heck? I'd be be happy to go. Um, And so I always look for, this is going to sound funny, considering current... Uh, present physical location, but I always look for the places that are away from the stage and out of the lights because I don't want to be seen at those things. Um, And so I I sit in this very, very strategic spot and I'm sitting next to this one guy and we're, you know, chatting because they make you get there like an hour early. Um, Okay, chat, 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 chat. He finally asks me what I think of Mike Pence and I'm like, well, you know, nice guy but doesn't have a shot. Um, And afterward he asked me again, and I start going down this huge list of all the things that I just found, like, unappealing about his performance at the town hall. And he's like, yeah, 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 okay, thank you, thank you. And 
he handed a business card to the guy next to me, and I saw the name, and I realized I was sitting next to his campaign chair the whole time. Oh. Whoops! Oh. Oh. Oh, that's but it's good. politics. You've got to be able to take that kind of feedback. <laughs> Love it. Love it. On Wednesday of this week, President Biden announced more than $5 billion in renewable energy, land conservation, and rural broadband and utility projects, $400 million for projects right here in Iowa. Uh, in that announcement, he spoke in uh, rural Northfield, Minnesota. Um, their administration, Biden, and the minute plan to barnstorm the country in the next couple of weeks uh, to talk about this. I'm wondering what you panelists, what you think about this investment in rural uh, America, uh, how it will impact what has uh, been a weakness for the Democrats. Um, uh, working people have uh, deserted the Democratic Party in, in, in recent elections. Will this win them back? And um, uh, what will be the impact, the political impact, uh, as well as the, I guess, the physical impact on, on uh, rural America? I think it's hard for me to, to answer that because um, when when you talk to a lot of people in, in rural Iowa, at least when I talk to, to rural voters, um, you know, they talk about um, inflation and, and they and they talk about. Um, Struggles that their families have, um, you know, being able to pay bills and, and put food on the table. They talk about grocery prices. They talk about gas prices. Um, I don't know how immediately the investments from the Biden administration are going to address um, those issues, um, but you know, more broadly. Um, there's funding in there um, for um, broadband connectivity, um, you know, which is um, an issue that uh, affects a lot of rural Iowa. Um, and um, you know, if if some of those investments um, and if um, some of the investments with um, uh, conservation programs and um, helping farmers adapt or adopt climate smart. Uh, agriculture um, that leads to new revenue streams that can help, you know, boost farm economies, economies, excuse me, and can help, um, again, provide new opportunities, new revenue streams for farmers. If that translates into, um, you know, further prosperity, you know, new jobs, higher incomes in rural areas, then yeah, I, I think it'll be great. But I guess, you know, time will tell. And the big question is, um, you know, how much will these rural communities actually, um, you know, prosper and see, you know, increases in quality of life, increases in income, et cetera, um, when right now, you know, their families are seeing um, immediate impacts again from, from inflation. And, and so their immediate focus is on right now, you know, um, and, and, and paying their bills and their budgets and um, less so looking forward. And, and, and so, I don't know, we'll see. I want to ask a couple more national questions and um, to make sure we get those in. Um, a question from the audience, why can't or won't the U.S. Senate change the rules regarding military promotion so one senator is not able to hold everything up? Well, I, I mean, I think there's probably once 
this problem is solved, there probably will be a move to, to maybe change the way promotions are approved. Or, I, you know, until this, it was surprising to me that Congress had to approve, the Senate had to approve all of those promotions. I didn't, I didn't even know that that was a, that that was a thing. But yeah, and and you know, Tommy Tuberville, the former football coach, uh, today, last couple of days, he's really been taking a lot of heat. I mean, even Joni Ernst was sort of out criticizing him. Uh, so I think we're nearing an end of this. I don't. Now that his caucus is sort of turning on him, I think it's we'll see him yield. But yeah, in the future, I I would think that they'd want to create a different process. Speaking of Joni Ernst, um, Senator Ernst this week sent letters to inspectors general for various federal agencies asking them to look into whether remote work is hurting the services provided to taxpayers. She uses the word defrauding several times in her news release. Althea, what do you think the bar should be for determining if employees working from home are being productive or you know, whether it's in some way defrauding the government? Well, if we're looking at like um, online communication standards, you know, maybe we should all set some basic uh, you know, requirements for how we conduct ourselves on Zoom meetings. Um, wear pants, for one thing. <laughs> See, Todd and I have a meeting over Zoom every Monday, and we both wear pants, at least. We, no, I, he does. Actually, I know no, he I, I, can, I can confirm. I'm, I'm yes, in, he wears pants because sometimes he has well, to stand up and let the dog out. It might be pajama pants, but, it, you know, it's pants. They're pants or pants, as far as yeah. I am concerned. Um, uh, other standards, um, maybe don't, um, you know, say you're uh, attending a meeting in a bathtub and then put that on social media, because, Now, okay, so you've got those basic telework standards, which unfortunately some people need to be told. Um, and then you've got the fact that, um, I'm trying to think of a way to say this politely, because boy, do I have strong opinions on this. The federal government workforce culture sucks. Sorry, I gotta say it. Um, and, and I can understand why that is. You look at a private business, they're either owned by maybe a person or a family, or they're owned by uh, shareholders, and therefore they have a board of directors, which means that if productivity is down, if something is, is ultimately not being done well enough, somebody is going to want to see a change, shareholders, owners, managers, whatever, um, and they're going to work to implement that change. When you are a public entity, whether it be the state or the federal government, you get exactly one shot to change the person at, at the top. Depending on what the office is, it's usually, you know, in bureaucratic circles, it's four years. Um, and that person determines everything. They determine, you know, who their top deputies are, they, and, and it's all down from there, where, you know, if, if something in the culture is not going well, it's, it's basically, like I said, voters get one shot to replace that person. So there's really not a whole lot of incentive to perform at the best levels possible, and that is going to create, unfortunately, a pretty sluggish culture of work. I found that out the hard way when I worked for the federal government and they had me work at home and I could choose my hours, great. I got to um, have certain pay raises depending on what hours I worked. If I worked on a Sunday, I would get like, I think it was a 25% premium and if I worked any evening after six o'clock, it was an extra 10% added to my pay. So. Um, I could work up to eight hours a day. You better believe that comes Sunday at 6 p.m. I was working until midnight and making a pretty nice hourly wage. Um, 
does that mean that that was the best work style for the United States government and that taxpayers who were funding my paycheck? I'll be honest, no. And you know, I want to do a good job. I'm pretty efficient at what I do. And even I was tempted to, to do what was best for me and not best for the people who I was serving. Okay, so I've got a kind of a two questions I'm going to wrap into one um, that relate to um, somewhat to the Democrats. First question is, why is your audience filled with old people? Where are the young people? <laughs> question one. They're raising their hands out there. <laughs> Woohoo! Okay. So, second question, what is your take on the Iowa Democratic Party's call for the University of Iowa Democratic leaders to resign over a perceived anti-Semitic co comment supporting Palestinian human rights and peace? Does this put the Iowa Democrats at odds with young Democratic voters? Uh, yes. <laughs> at, least, <laughs> at least, you know, a, a segment of them who have been outspoken in support of Palestinians during the, you know, the, the rising violence in, in the Middle East. I mean, of course, the horrific, just incredibly awful, I, I've never seen the video and, and, and things that you see about the Hamas attack on October 7th are just, I mean, I, it's, it's I've, I've never seen anything like that probably since, you know, the stuff you see from the Holocaust. Uh, and, I mean, I realize that, you know, progressive young Democrats on college campuses, you know, they're, they're going to have a different viewpoint of that. And I think that was shown in the statement. They, they used the, the slogan from the river to the sea, which is regarded by a lot, a lot of uh, Israelis and, and Jews that means elimination of the Jewish state of Israel, which is, you know, that's basically they would cease to exist. So you can, it's understandable that this caused a lot of consternation on the part of Iowa Democrats because this is a, I mean, this is a drama that's playing out in a lot of states where young progressives are now souring on the party because, you know, President Biden is supporting Israel and, and has followed sort of a, a more conventional track on this. Uh, but I, that said, I'm, you know, these are these are college organizations. They they you know they have members that volunteer. They pick their leadership. I'm not I'm not sure why the state Democratic Party felt a need to sort of ask, you know, people in that university organization to resign. I mean, it's I understand why they condemn what they said, but I don't think I don't think the state party should be involved in deciding who. <laughs> you know, who participates in, in college Republican clubs or Democratic, college, college Democrat clubs. Here's an interesting question, very broad, but it speaks to the change in the GOP uh, over the last decades. From the audience, this question, if Robert Ray were running for governor <laughs> this year, uh, would he have to run as a Republican or as a Democrat is the question. I want to ask before we go to our panelists here, how many have a living memory of Governor Robert Ray? Okay, so 
has, I guess the question, another way is, has the GOP, the Republican Party, changed so much that it would not have Robert Ray in its ranks? What do you think, panelists? I hear the name Robert Ray uttered so much when talking about Republican policies in Iowa these days, and I don't know the answer to the question. It's, it's not... The man was governor for a long time. It's been a long time since he's been governor. The reality is any governor, Republican or Democrat, from any place to you know the early to mid to even the late 20th century is going to see a different state of Iowa and a different United States today. They're going to see a different Democratic Party than they saw 50 years ago. They're going to see a different Republican Party than they saw 50 years ago. I wanted to shift a little bit. Um, it's just a few days until Tuesday's local and school board elections. Some of these races, especially in urban and suburban school districts, have become more political and more contentious. Uh, this isn't necessarily surprising given how education was the focus of several major bills in the Iowa legislature this year. To what degree are Iowa school boards at risk of becoming so polarized that they may not be able to make you know, basic decisions about budgeting and things like that? I mean, it, it's, these races have become, I mean, they're very politicized. I mean, I live in the Linmar district. We've got uh, eight, eight candidates for four open seats. Three of them have been uh, endorsed by Moms for Liberty, which was a group that, you know, led the charge on some of the rem book removal and, and LGBTQ, uh, you know, using the facilities and things like, things like that in schools. They were, they were in support of those things. Um, so... You know, obviously, that's that's going to be a factor in the race there because it's, it got so much attention. I mean, if Mike Pace hadn't Mike Pence hadn't dropped out, he'd he'd still be talking about Lindmar's gender uh, support policy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think particularly I've seen around the Des Moines suburbs, there's a lot of very contentious races. You've got the family leader. Uh, that's weighing in on some of that. One Iowa is making some endorsements and, and, and spending some money. This is a nonpartisan, no-pay position, and uh, it's, it's kind of become the, the main event this election cycle. Um, I don't think the concern so much is that um, it's going to um, lead to you know, an inability of these boards to, 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 to function and, and to govern. I think the concern is, um, you know, will we see what we've seen happen with um, the Iowa legislature, you know, translate into what happens with these school boards? You know, is it going to shift the dynamic of these school boards? Now, you know, it's up to the professionals, it's up to the educators to decide how to get us there. Um, or is it going to be more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, I guess heavy-handed and dictating, here's what you can and cannot do. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. It's a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River presented by the Gazette and Iowa Public Radio. We'll be back in just a moment. Time to refresh your drinks here at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. Um, we'll be back in just a few minutes. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's a special Pints and Politics edition of River to River from IPR News, a partnership between IPR and the Gazette. We're here at CSPS in Cedar Rapids, a wonderful audience of political junkies. Let's hear it from you. Thank you. Let's uh, reintroduce our panel. Would you do that, my co-host Aaron Jordan? For sure. Our panel tonight is Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor Todd Dorman, Gazette political reporter Tom Barton, and Gazette columnist Althea Cole. We have a lot of, a great number of good audience questions. Before we get to those, though, we spent a lot of time... uh, earlier in the program, uh, in the evening here, talking about the GOP caucuses, which are now just over two months away here on uh, January 15th. Uh, Let's talk about the Democratic side, because there have been a lot of changes there. Um, Iowa Democrats can now begin requesting presidential preference cards for the party's first-ever mail-in caucus ahead of the 2024 race. I'm confused, and I know I'm not the only one. Tom Barton, how does this work? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, uh, the window uh, opened on Wednesday for Iowa Democrats to now begin requesting um, their presidential preference cards um, that they can mail in. Um, Those cards will be mailed starting January 12th. Uh, and Democrats have until February 19th to request a card. Um, the party will still hold in-person caucuses on January 15th, the same day as Republicans, um, but only to conduct um, party business unrelated to picking a presidential nominee. So, you know, electing precinct officers, determining unbound delegates to, to county conventions. Um, And uh, the party said uh, Wednesday that it will announce a list of in-person caucus locations soon. Um, The uh, preference cards have to be postmarked by um, March 5th, which is Super Tuesday. um, And the results will be announced by party officials um, later that same day. so, you know, I don't know if, if we need to go into the background, but, you know, National Democrats earlier this year reshaped the presidential nominating ca- uh, calendar, booting Iowa from being first in the nation and uh, removing Iowa from the group of early states altogether. Um, the Iowa Democratic Party had put forward this mail-in process to make the caucuses um, more accessible which was one of the main criticisms from national Democrats um, in an effort to try and maintain its first-in-the-nation status. Um, The party um, decided to move forward with that plan even after um, the DNC, um, you know, booted them out of the the early window, Um, again, feeling it was important to try and make the caucuses, again, uh, more accessible. And so any registered Iowa Democrat can request a preference card um, through a form that can be submitted um, online or downloaded, printed, and then mailed in. Um, 
And uh, do, 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 do. oh, uh, Democrats will be asked to affirm that they've not participated in a caucus of any other political party as part of that mail-in process. And um, the Iowa Democratic Party uh, State Central Committee um, is scheduled to approve the candidates who will, who will appear on the preference card at its uh, December 2nd meeting. We have four members of our audience who want to really talk about po the poor state of water quality in the state. Uh, <laughs> just a sampling of some of the questions here. Four I have in my hands. At what point do we regulate farm pollutions? The DNR does not regulate tiling into streams and rivers. I've seen farm crops eroding into the Turkey River. We have to have clean water and clean air. Another one in our audience asks, why don't Iowans seem to care about poor water quality in our state? Well, I think we need <laughs> pause for a smattering of applause. Um, I mean, I think we need to differ differentiate between what Iowans care about and uh, I guess what Iowa lawmakers are willing to do, right? I mean, uh, uh, Iowans absolutely care about water quality and they care about all the issues that uh, the, the questioners raised. Um, and so do Iowa lawmakers, but the question is, what are they willing to do to, to, to get us there? And, and it has to deal with, you know, philosophical differences of, um, you know, what the best practices and, and solutions are. Um, you know, is it, um, you know, voluntary measures that, um, you know, data and the science thus far has, has shown us, you know, hasn't made, um, you know, overall measurable differences in the state? Um, or is it going to be, um, you know, something more, uh, more stringent, you know, with, with, with some teeth to it? Well, it's, and it's, you know, when are we going to get regulations? Well, when, you know, some magician makes the you know, the Iowa Farm Bureau Federation disappear because that's, that's about what's, what it's going to take because they're going to, I mean, and other ag groups too, agribusiness groups, I mean, people that are selling the inputs, all of those things have, you know, lobbies at the Capitol and uh, they are all universally against any sort of rule or regulation that anybody has to follow. So you've got this voluntary program that isn't moving the needle. I mean, yeah, some farmers are doing a good job. Some people are putting in conservation practices, and there's some money to help them do that. But the vast majority of, of land in this state is not subject to those conservation practices, or cover crops, those sort of things. So, I mean, voters, I think, do care about it, but, it, you know, but they do keep electing a Republican legislature where... Republicans, generally farmers, are going to be in charge of the committees that look at these issues, and they they don't want to do anything. Well, well, is it is it really a, a partisan issue though? Because in my discussion, and one of our oh. our, our uh, Chris Jones, uh, right. in, environmental the engineer of the University of Iowa, formerly now retired, I asked him this question. He says it really is not a partisan issue. Democrats do not stand up to big ag right. when it comes to water quality well, either, I, do they? I agree with that. And, 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 you know, you talk about Republicans because, I mean, they sort of control everything right now, so that's who's not doing it now. But Democrats, you know, when candidates run, you ask, you know, do they favor 
regulations, and, and they'll say they, they want to have the, the voluntary approach with incentives, which is what we've been trying. They, they want to look, you know, they want to support eth the ethanol industry, which is, you know, uses 60% of the corn grown in the state and, and has basically increased demand for corn to the point where, you know, it's being farmed in ways that's, that are environmentally detrimental. So, uh, yeah, Democrats, Democrats share the blame. When they had, you know, partial power, they didn't, you know, when they had the Senate still, they didn't, they didn't pass anything remarkable. So, yeah, it's both parties. And uh, Iowans are going to have to somehow send the message. And, I, you know, I'm not sure how exactly that's going to happen. I mean, you know, the beaches are closing and the swimming is advised. And, you know, if you've got a rural, if you live in the rural area and you've got a well, I mean, if you haven't had it tested, chances are that, you know, the groundwater has maybe been contaminated by nitrates and farm runoff. So... Until it affects Iowans individually, I don't know. Everybody says they want clean water, which I think is what Chris Jones has named, named their podcast that they used to have. But uh, but until it affects people individually, I don't I don't know if we if we shove forward. I want to ask our panelists to comment on the apparent success of the UAW uh, strikes, United Automobile Workers. Some sympathy out in the audience? Uh, the United Automobile Workers unions have secured big gains in contracts with the three large U.S. automakers. Of course, Iowa not known as a uh, maker, of, but we do have suppliers who work here who are UAW members in Iowa. Um, the UAW leader, Sean Fain, said this past weekend, we invite unions around the country to align your contract expirations with our own. Uh, if we're going to truly take on the billionaire class and rebuild the economy so it starts to work for the benefit of the many and not the few, he said. And he said it's important that we not only strike, but that we strike together. I'm wondering, when we think back a couple of years to the successful John Deere strikes uh, in here in Iowa and the Midwest, uh, are we seeing a turning point um, a, a resurgence in the power of unions. Uh, those of us who go back a few years remember that in the in the 60s and 70s, the unions were were quite powerful and then quite demolished at one point and and have been uh, less significant ever since. Are we seeing a turning point? Thoughts from the panel. Um, if you look at the membership of the UAW, um, and. I confess I just Googled this on my phone, so maybe it's still there. The United, the United Auto Workers Union once had 1.5 million members. Today, the UAW is down to 380,000 members, and they're in a wide range of industries. Um, only about half of the United Auto Workers Union um, is an auto worker. So any resurgence of unions is going to be because they're looking for previously non-unionized workers to join their ranks and replace those who have over the years thought, you know, this isn't doing for me what I need it to do considering the dues that I pay and what I'm asked to contribute to the union. Um, some of those professions are interesting. Um, it's not the UAW who's organizing, but a Starbucks. Organizing a Starbucks, okay, that's going to have some interesting implications on how they schedule workers, how they pay workers, um, what kind of benefits they offer. Um, 
So are unions having a resurgence? Numbers will tell us in a few years. Numbers from the previous few years might give us a hint, I have to confess. I did not look that up before getting here. Um, but if the resurgence happens, it's going to be, be because they're looking in places where I contend, again, you know, baristas, you know, theater workers in Iowa City, I, I contend that those aren't the best professions to unionize because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Other thoughts on labor activism? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's welcomed in, in the, from the standpoint that workers are more, seem more comfortable asserting their bargaining rights through joining a union. Uh, I, I mean, if you, the charts are out there. You, I mean, you know, when unions were powerful, the middle class wage, wage growth was, was better than it is now, and we've seen a lot of basically stagnation with inflation uh, in, in recent decades. So, uh, you know, I, you know we, we, we have, I mean, in the 80s and the 90s, we saw this, like, you know, the, all, a lot of the power going to, you know, stockholders, executives, boards of directors, making lots of decisions that weren't necessarily good for workers, but were good for the share price, good for dividends. Uh, and I think if that pendulum can swing a little more the other way, that there's more focus on what workers need and what workers should earn and what, what role they're playing in the success of a company, I think that's probably a good thing. Tom, you had a story this week about the Iowa mobile ID app, which is now available. That wasn't you? Someone else had a story in the Gazette this week about the mobile ID app. Um, I wonder, Althea, I know that you may have seen some of this um, from, you know, early voting sites. What is this ID and how can and can't it be used? The story was Caleb McCullough from our uh, Lee Des Moines Bureau. Um, and as far as how it can and can't be used, I, I, I took a little look at this. Um, as far as where mobile ID is accepted right now, um, I, <laughs> I took a look, and basically it's a bunch of vape stores right now, <laughs> and like, uh, you know, a handful of restaurants and maybe like a, a small town grocer or two. Um, they were talking about uh, federal access, like um, to get on a plane and whatnot. And but in the state of Iowa, like actual businesses that are accepting it, not a whole lot yet. But clearly, the vape industry, or at least Central Iowa vapors, has seen an opportunity um, and is going for it. But keep in mind, like even on the website, it says you know, don't use this in lieu of your driver's license because most places aren't going to accept it. So bring your driver's license with you. And in the context of voting, yes, uh, you, you know, you're not going to be turned away for using a valid form of ID. But no, smartphones are not a valid form of ID with the mobile app. And I would prefer to keep it that way. Thank you very much. Do, do, do you know whether they're accepted in Illinois at dispensaries? I mean, I'm, I'm just... I'm just asking for a friend. Yes, I'm going to... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get inside the head of Illinois legislators. That'll go really well. <laughs> We've come to the end of the, uh, another Pints and Politics edition of, of River to River. Thanks to our panelists and our audience for coming out on this evening. Wanted to throw a, a light uh, question to do with politics out to our panelists uh, to end this program. 
Uh, perhaps you caught this story this week. It's happened to the names of sports teams, uh, to school buildings, and military bases. Now the names of dozens of North American birds will be changed. The nation's top birding organization decided that birds should no longer have human names. It will prioritize changing names linked to white supremacists and enslavers. So this week, the American Orthonological Society exploring, announced it exploring uh, up to 80 new names next year. The names will better describe the birds' characteristics. One of these, just to give you an example, uh, the Hammond's Flycatcher. Hammond, where did that name come from? It's named for William Alexander Hammond, a former U.S. Surgeon General. He held racist views toward both black and indigenous people. So that's an example. To the panelists, though, uh, to throw this wide open, what bird name would you like to change? And why? Well, do the birds get consulted at all? I mean, they're they're not even part of this process, and it's. Their I think name. it's a work in progress, but I'd say no. I don't think uh, they they have any say. Well, here, there are people that say the birds aren't real. Birds maybe, are not maybe real, you've seen right? That. There was that movement. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say the uh, blue-footed booby because I think that uh, it would violate the new Iowa law banning sexual content in schools. <laughs> Pints and Politics recorded yesterday evening, November 2nd at CSPS in Cedar Rapids. My co-host was Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan, our panelists, Todd Dorman, Althea Cole, and Tom Barton, all of the Gazette. Find out how you can attend future Pints and Politics at thegazette.com. The next one is December 7th. Our producer and audio editor today, Danny Gear. Sound engineer, Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.